to our last week looking at the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And as has been our practice, we will read the passage this morning as our beginning. So if you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, and this is God's Word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me, given to me, in, the opening, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Our overarching theme as we've been studying through this passage is that victory in spiritual conflict requires two things, active reliance on the Lord Jesus and on his power, but then also responsible action in his strength. And today is our last day studying this. Um, Next Lord's Day uh, Sunday School, uh, you will have a special missionary presentation from Reverend Charles Jackson, who was the the founding pastor of this congregation. So today's our last week as we're studying this particular topic. And in addition to this kind of foundational point that victory in spiritual conflict requires active reliance and responsible action, just thought it would be helpful maybe here at the beginning to just ask, what are some of the other big takeaways that you all have, have taken from studying this passage? Any other big takeaways that, that kind of stick with you over these weeks? Todd, go ahead. Right. Yeah. From the, um, from the preface to the screw tape letters, he says there are, there are two errors that one can make about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, or the other is to have an unhealthy interest in them, right? So how does that apply to this topic? How would you apply that to this topic, Todd, for us as believers?
Right. Okay. So just to repeat for those who are listening on the ears or at home, uh, Todd was saying, you know, that we apply this 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 idea from Lewis by number one, re- remembering that God has told us some things about this in His Word, so we need to be aware of what God tells us. But as long as we are aware of that and then being strengthened by Christ, uh, we don't need to be either afraid or, you know, push further to try to get more information. Don't press into that kind of unhealthy interest. Okay, good. Other big takeaways from these studies? Go ahead, Jeremy. Right, yeah. That was, that's kind of a, a fun discovery, right? You're reading this passage and realizing that there are all these other connections to Old Testament passages. We're going to see another one of those today and then other places in Scripture really pointing out to us that the armor that we are given is the armor that Jesus, Jesus himself wore. In a sense, it's, you know, have you, ever, have you ever sat down in a seat that somebody else just vacated, you know, and it has that, that kind of that, that warm sense? I don't really like that too much. It feels a little weird to me, but... But it could be very comforting, and if the armor you're putting on comes from Jesus, it's still warm with his strength, and I think that can be very comforting. Um, any other big takeaways? Okay, Doug. Uh, I've just been thinking also a lot about that Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Off the rails. Yeah, off the rails. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, it's, you know, some of the comments that were shared, just again to repeat, is the, um, the importance of, of knowing that it is a war, and a war is scary and terrifying, and, and, there's, and life and death is in the balance and Doug brought that out, you know, your adversary, the roaring lion, is looking for those whom he can devour. At the same time, it's an invisible war. And so it's not always obvious. And so the things that, you know, kind of you encounter through daily life may not seem like, you know, action points or battlefields um, of this war. But if you live in a war zone, you know that anything could potentially become a point of conflict. You know, think about brothers and sisters right now living in places like the Ukraine, Right, where at any given time the bombs could, you know, the, the air raid sirens could come on and the, the rockets could start landing. And so that need to be kind of constantly vigilant. Uh, this, I mentioned this later on in our lesson, but one of the things that Jesus said to his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, two words, three words, watch and pray. Right, we need to be watchful and we need to be prayerful. Okay, well, let's, let's move on a little bit. We're going to try to Catch, catch the rest of these items this morning. We did talk last week about the shield of faith, faith being that God-given persuasion 
to believe the promises of Christ. We talked about how Christ himself exercised a perfect faith in his Father's promises. We talked about how and to take up that shield of faith means that we shelter not behind our piety, not behind the strength of our faith or the strength of our repentance, but ultimately behind Christ's promises. And does anybody remember, this may be stretching your memories a little bit, we were talking about the word that Paul uses to describe the shield of faith, and we said it refers to a very specific type of Roman shield. Does anybody remember how big the Roman shields were? Anna. Yeah, yeah, not quite five. They're about that, from what, what the commentary was saying, they're about four feet tall by two and a half feet wide. That's a pretty big shield, right? Yeah, you could actually hide your whole body. So after telling us in verse 16 to, to take up the shield of faith, it goes, making supplication for all the saints. So a couple of phrases here that we want to dig into at the beginning, sort of looking at the, what are the doctrines involved here, the word salvation. Uh, the, this phrase, the sword of the Spirit, and then the idea of praying at all times. So, without necessarily looking at the paper right away, when you hear the phrase or you hear the word salvation, very, very common New Testament word, even throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament, what, how would you define that if somebody said, well, what do you mean by salvation? What, what, what comes to mind? Okay, Jesus' death, Right? Go a little further with that, Todd. Yeah. So Jesus' death for us, right, and the benefits it brings. Okay, that's good. The benefits of Christ's death, um, also Christ's life, right? Jeremy, go ahead. Okay, rescue, right, being, being delivered from something, right? Very good. Any other thoughts? Just kind of, yeah, Doug. Yeah. Okay, so being delivered and saved from judgment through forgiveness. Uh, right. Yeah, really, really in Scripture, the, the, the term salvation is one of these blanket terms or umbrella terms that has this all-encompassing idea. It really can, can apply to all that God has done to rescue us from the ruin of sin, from the ruin of our own self-worship. And as a comprehensive term, it's very interesting to note this, some of you may already know this, but it can be used in Scripture to refer to, to the past, the present, and the future. It has Because it, it, it refers to all that God has done and all that God is doing and all that God will do. And, and I want to uh, show you a couple texts from that. These are on the handout. So the first kind of sub-bullet there. Fundamentally, salvation refers and points us to God's grace in Christ. Some of the brothers mentioned this intervening upon our sin to rescue us. And so this great passage from Ephesians 4, right after in, in Ephesians uh, 1, 2, yeah, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, goes on and says, but you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then verse 4, but God... But God, being rich in mercy, the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That idea of salvation fundamentally being about the grace of God. God giving us the gift. We deserve what? Hell, wrath, condemnation, judgment. All of us deserve that. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God in Christ gives us the opposite of what we deserve. God gives us what Jesus deserves, and he gave Jesus what we deserve. And so he gives us life, forgiveness, salvation. And he does this in, in a, a multifaceted way. A professor of mine uh, last January at the, the seminar I was at talked about the multi-splendor, the multi-splendored Christ. And this word salvation can refer and does at times in Scripture refer to God's grace in our past, the moment of our conversion and the moment of our justification. So from Titus chapter 3, right there, I'll read it to you. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And note that past tense. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So is it true for you to say as a Christian, I have been saved, I am saved? Yes, yes. Why is that important for you to remember that there is a definitive past aspect to your salvation? Why is that important? Anna, go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That that past aspect of our salvation referring to our justification reminds us that we are forgiven even when we continue to struggle with sin. And are you ever more justified later on than you were at the first moment you believed in Jesus? No. Justification is an act of God's free grace. It is a declaration. As soon as you believe, uh -huh. as soon as you believe, You are as justified as you will ever be. You are as justified as you will ever be. And that really provides a foundation or a path on which you can walk an assurance that God is not going to let me go. Okay, so you have been saved, but also the word salvation can be used to refer to God's work in your present, in our present lives, to our ongoing discipleship and our sanctification. Is, is sanctification um, something you grow in, or is sanctification fixed? It's a process, exactly. And so, is it true that you will become more sanctified later than previously? If you are a Christian, the answer is yes. Yes, right. Yeah, it doesn't always... No, I appreciate what Doug is saying. It, there are times when it feels like we're stuck. And there may be times when we are actually stuck for a season... It's kind of like watching the stock market. If you zoom in too close and you see these big dips, you can be really discouraged, right? But 
but the, the stock market of our sanctification, if you zoom out, the, the arrow is always going in which direction? Further up and further in, right? And so the scriptures talk about that as well. I'll give you a couple, couple of passages here. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, notice the present ongoing tense there, it is the power of God. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we, believers, are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. Again, that ongoing continuous sense. And among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So there's that ongoing sense, God's work in your present. Why is that important to remember? Anna, what did you say last time? Well, you said, I think the first part of what you said, and when I asked why is it important to remember our justification, you said, because we still sin. And so why is it important to remember that God is continuing to save us and he's working on us now? Because we still sin. So in your day-to-day struggles, when you like kind of zoom in there on the stock market and all you're seeing is discouragement and you feel stuck in a rut, you remember that God is still at work in me. God is still working to renew my mind, to retrain my affections, to empower my life to obey the law of Jesus. So that's also a, a real encouragement. Our foundation is sure. Our justification is once for all. And our sanctification is, is going in one direction. God is working and drawing us uh, toward him day by day. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our, though our outward nature is wasting away, our inward man is being renewed day by day. And then that also points us then to the goal And the same word, salvation, the same word group, uh, the the verb to save, can also be used to refer to God's work in our future, God's promises for our future. Um, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 12. Besides this, Paul says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And that's reminding us of our destiny and our glorification. And so you see this this word really refers to the past, the present, the future. Conversion, discipleship, destiny, justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's an all-encompassing sort of an umbrella term. Does that make sense? Any questions or thoughts on that? Anything I'm missing? There's always more that uh, a multitude of counselors can remember from the scriptures. All right, well, let's, let's look then at the next phrase. So Paul says, the helmet of salvation, and then he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I had thought about making this part of the lesson a little bit of a show and tell. Uh, when I was installed... Three and a half years ago, Pastor Patton and Pastor Peppo gave me this massive sword, still in my office, just in case somebody breaks in during the week. 
But if you, if you pull it out of its sheath, there is inscribed on it in Greek this phrase, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's, it's just a, a really grand sort of vivid image. Um, why is the Scriptures, why are the Scriptures called the sword of the Spirit? Because they are breathed out by God. The Scriptures are God-breathed. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And notice here, as I read this, how Paul puts the word salvation in this context as well. Look at what he says right there in your handout. The sacred writings, which at that point he was referring to what body of, of writing? At the time he's right. What's that, Todd? Primarily the Old Testament, right, right. Um, the New Testament was still being written and circulated at this time. So primarily referring to the Old Testament. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for what? For salvation. For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And the Greek word there is, it's an interesting sort of conjunction. It's theopneustos. It literally means, if you've got an NIV Bible, God breathed. Um, the ESV is pretty good. Breathed out by God. But the word there is literally God breathed. It's theopneustos. It's God God-spirited, God-breathed, uh, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now think about how this then ties into some of the other elements of the armor of God, the belt of truth, right? Well, truth requires what? Correction, training, reproof. Righteousness, right? It says training in righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And the sacred writings contain what overall message? The message of the gospel, right? Which talks then goes on the shoes for our feet being the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, the scriptures make us wise for salvation through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, it says right there. And so again, the shield of faith. So all these things are really tied together and linked together. It's an interlinked set of spiritual armor. And the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Um, why is it so important that we have the Word of God? This is maybe stepping a little bit out of our bailiwick today on this particular topic, but without the Scriptures, if you did not have the Scriptures, how much could human beings know about God? What would we know about God? Okay, so we would know that there is a God, a creator, right? Romans chapter 1. And one other thing. Romans chapter 2 talks about the law of God being written on our heart and the function of conscience. And so we would know that, there, that this God, whoever he may be, this is if we didn't have the scriptures, that this God, whoever he may be, is a moral God and to him we are morally accountable. Now that's... That's enough, as Paul says, to leave us unexcusable. So all people everywhere in the world, whether they, whether they admit it or not, know that there is a God to whom they are morally accountable, although Paul says they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But question, important question, is that knowledge enough sufficient to bring us to salvation? It's not. And so why is it important for us to have the Scriptures? 
so that we can, we, can, we can know who Jesus is, so we can know and be saved, so we can know more about this God and all that he has done to rescue us. So very important. The Westminster Confession of Faith says something, which maketh the Holy Scripture most necessary. Um, so the sword of the Spirit. Salvation is connected to the gospel revealed in the Spirit, the truth, the righteousness, the faith that is revealed. And then finally, Paul says here, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, we did, it was a year ago, last spring, um, second quarter of 2022, we did a seven-week Sunday school class on prayer. So we're not going to dig really into the nuts and bolts of prayer this morning, except just by way of some summary thoughts here to give us just a framework as we think through this. Praying at all times in the Spirit means prayer that is guided, shaped, helped, and even providentially prompted by the Holy Spirit. So think about it, and these are the points underneath there. If the sword of the Spirit is God's Word, then wouldn't it make sense that part of praying in the Spirit would involve praying God's words back to Him? Right? Wouldn't that just make sense? If, 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 this, if the Word of God is theopneustos, if it's God-breathed, if it's the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit and we are to be praying in the Spirit, well, I, first and foremost, what it should mean is that we should allow our prayers to be informed, shaped, and molded, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, by the words of that same Holy Spirit. So praying the Scriptures. Any of you ever tried doing that? Just praying God's promises back to Him? Isn't it encouraging to know that you're asking for things that God has already promised to give you? And then when you do that, when, you're, when you, the baseline of your prayers are guided and shaped and formed by God's own promises, then from that foundation you can, build, you can build a little more toward the things that are maybe less clear, but you're always submitting them and always grounding them on the promises of God. I was talking to somebody just recently and said, you know, one of the things you can do with your prayers is always try to tie your petitions to a promise of God or to something that Scripture says He wants to see in our life. That gives us great confidence. Are there any places of Scripture that are particularly helpful in helping to train us to form our prayers by God's Word? Right, the Psalms. Right, right. The Psalms are uh, the prayer book of the Bible. Um, so very, very useful to just pray the Psalms. Now you have to do some work when you're praying the Psalms, don't you? Sometimes you have to, you have to interpret them through the Gospel. But even that's good for us. And it's a good exercise as we, as we learn to pray God's word back to him. So praying at all times in the spirit, um, first and foremost, should encourage us to pray God's word back to him and be praying in a way that is guided by the word. Uh, but also, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit helps us when we pray. He says, we don't know what to pray, we don't always know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit who dwells in us helps us. That should be an encouragement, right? You know, God is not like the, the, the mythological genies that you have to make sure you word things exactly right because if you say the wrong things, bang, you're going to get zapped. Not like that. God is a God of grace. God is, a, God is our Father, and, and the Holy Spirit in us helps us to pray. And He intercedes for us. Even as you're praying, He is interceding for us. It's, I, I heard this once years ago, and... Um, it's helpful to me, at least, to think that the, the Spirit is kind of taking my prayers and maybe tweaking them, editing them, and then sending them on to the Lord, the, the Father. I'm, I'm sure it's not, it doesn't work exactly like that, but 
To me, that's a helpful image, that, that God himself is refining my prayers as he presents them to himself. Uh, very helpful. Takes away a lot of that scare factor. Um, and then also, we talk about the Spirit prompting us to pray. Again, this is mysterious, and we don't want to go beyond what is written. But what do we know from what is written? That God providentially directs all things, right? God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That includes the thoughts that come to our minds are providentially under the direction of God. And if we are to be praying at all times, and God providentially brings something to mind, then I can pray for that. And I can even consider that to be something that God has brought to mind for me to pray for. Make sense? Any of you ever experienced that? You know, you're, you're just going about your, your, kind of your daily business, and all of a sudden it seems like kind of out of, out of left field. Something comes to mind, and you're like, and you kind of get this idea like, maybe I should pause and pray for that thing or that person. That's happened to me. And it's part of God providentially directing all things. And again, our responsibility as believers is to be praying throughout the day, throughout our lives. And so if you, if you get that sense, is it, ever, is it ever a bad thing to pray to the Lord God Almighty? Is there anything about which it would be bad to pray to God? I mean, the things of ordinary life? Not, not to, you, you think there are some? Yeah, so there are some things we shouldn't ask. But my question was, is there anything that we shouldn't be praying about? Yeah, yeah. So you're right, Dominic's right. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be typically raining down curses on people. We should pray for their repentance rather than, rather than their cursing. But in general, there's... And, and the Bible does say, you know, you shouldn't pray for those who have... You know, don't pray for the dead. There, there are certain things that we don't pray for. But in, in the situations of life, the people, places, events that come to mind, it's never a bad move to pray and to bring that before Jesus. So, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, let's, let's flip over to the back side. One of the things that we've tried to do throughout this time of study together is to frame all of these doctrines and all of this discussion of the armor of God in the light of the gospel and in the light of the life and work of Jesus. And so, how do we, how do we make sure that we're reading this through a gospel lens? Well, like the breastplate of righteousness... Uh, the helmet of salvation is explicitly in the Old Testament attributed to Christ as part. We quoted this verse when we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, but from Isaiah 59, uh, verses 16 and 17. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. This is after a long section at the beginning of I Isaiah 59 where he's just lamenting the brokenness and the sin and the, the self-destructive desires of his people. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what does God do? Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And then it goes on to say, and a redeemer will come to Zion. So whose armor is the helmet of salvation first and foremost? It's Christ's own armor, and you put on that helmet of salvation, you should feel it's still warm with his own life. Um, likewise, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The book of Revelation describes the Word of Christ like a sword. Revelation chapter 1. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And think about, we mentioned this in a previous week when we were talking about um, the way that the devil attacks and tempts God's people. 
But when Jesus was personally tempted by Satan, um, how did he reply in every case? What did he use? He used scripture, right? He, he withdrew the sword. He unsheathed the sword of the Spirit and combated the devil's lies and the devil's temptations using God's own word, God's own promises. Okay, good. And as for praying at all times in the Spirit, well, we looked at this last week in our sermon. The letter to Hebrews tells us that our Lord's life was an ongoing life of prayer. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And we think of that maybe first, our first thought is we go to the cross when Jesus was praying, even on the cross. But, but it's very important to note there in Hebrews 5, 7, and we did bring this out last week, it doesn't say in the day of his cross, although that's certainly true, but what does it say? In the days of his flesh, days, plural, that his life was an ongoing life of prayer and dependence and reliance on his Father's promises. In fact, I give you another reference there. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Um, a prize to whoever can tell me what's in that verse without looking it up. Does anybody know what that verse is talking about? Mark 1, 35? Todd, go ahead. Oh, not quite. You get the consolation prize. Okay. Anybody know Mark chapter 1? This is the verse where it talks about Jesus getting up early in the morning and withdrawing to a desolate place to pray. And in that section of Mark's gospel, it's sort of, that whole section is kind of a day in the life of the Savior, giving us kind of a, what his typical day looked like. And so it's, it's important for us to see that that was a regular part of his pattern. Todd, I'll still give you the prize. The prize is a free drink from the water fountain after Sunday school. You're, you're welcome. So... All of these things, and, and, we, and we've seen this throughout our study, have we not? That every bit of the armor of God is tied to the life and work of our Savior himself. In terms of how the enemy will attack us with regard to um, the helmet of salvation, with regard to the sword of the Spirit, with regard to prayer, um, I feel like at this point you should know the answer without me telling you. Because there is a consistent pattern that we've, we've, we've just reviewed over and over to the way the enemy attacks us. Now, for, just to kind of prompt your thinking, can the devil or his minions, can they, can they directly control a Christian believer? No, why not? Right, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First John 5.18, uh, the devil, the evil one cannot touch him. So that means they're not going to be able to directly grab control of your brain, you know, and, and, and move you around like an automaton. So then, secondly, what are the enemies, world, flesh, devil, what, is their most, what are their most consistent lines of attack? What are the regular ways in which they attack us as believers? Anna. Okay, yep, lies. Has God really said? Did God really say? And then he quotes and distorts, right? What else? What are some other ways? So lies. The, the enemy attacks us through lies. What are other ways? Go ahead, Doug. Accusations. Accusations, right. Satan is called the accuser of our brethren. All right, what are some of the accusations that he'll use? Well, let's flesh that out a little bit. 
You're not good enough, right? Attacking that breastplate of righteousness. What else? You're not really a Christian, right? You don't, have, you don't really have faith. You don't really have enough. Um, what else? Your works aren't good enough. Okay, so those are some of the accusations. Okay, Trina, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And that, that's kind of going back to the lies, right? You know, if you, if you, you, know, if you live this way, you're really going to be happier. And even like, you know, look, all of your friends are. And basically all the world around us is kind of living this way. You know, who's right, you or them? Right, trying to take the focus off God's word. Did God really say? Right, so trying to lie to us, tell us you'll be happier if you live in this way. Right, so lies, accusations, what else? And actually what, what Trina said maybe taps into another common line of attack, but I'll see if somebody else can, can, can get it. Yeah, so what are some of the other lines of attack? What are the general ways? So we've said he attacks us through lies, through accusations. Go ahead, Missy. Okay. Okay, isolating, right? Getting us alone. All right, have you ever seen those kind of Planet Earth documentaries where they've got, like, the helicopter view of the antelopes that are running and the wolves that are maneuvering? And what do they always try to do? They try to peel off the stragglers, right? Get them alone. And then, you know, when, when you break from the pack, what's going to happen? Like, you know what the next five minutes of that show is going to be, right? You know, barbecue um, without the fire, right? Right, so he tries to isolate us, exactly. Um, there's another avenue here, Betty. Yes, right, and this ties into what Trina was saying, right? So you'll have more fun, you'll enjoy life more. That's not only a lie, but it's, ta- it's tapping into those sinful deeds and desires, that desire of the flesh. Um, and then there's another one. There's at least one more. Go ahead, Mike. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Self, self-reliance. Okay, yeah. That's good. That wasn't what I was thinking. So there's at least one more. Uh, manipulation. That's kind of a general thing, yeah. There's at least one more. Michael. Okay, yep, yep, and what is suffering, I think, I think we can dig from suffering to where the answer I'm looking for, suffering is a big part of it, when you are suffering, how do you feel? Abandoned, sometimes you wonder, despair, you wonder if it will ever end, right, you are afraid, right, and the enemy will use our fears, to tempt us. The fear of death, Hebrews talks about. Or even the, the, uh, the, lesser, the lesser fear physically, but just as strong relationally, the fear of being rejected by others, the fear of missing out, the fear of being excluded or ostracized from our peers or our society. Is that, is that a strong line of attack in our day? Yeah? You know, somebody, it was, it was said in a an op-ed or, you know, Christian op-ed, I don't know, like two years ago, maybe longer, said the, the writer said, you know, the day is coming when if you simply, in, in the most gracious and gentle way possible, stand for and confess your belief in the biblical view of 
how we are created male and female and the, the biblical teaching on the sanctity of marriage and what marriage is, the day is coming in your lifetimes when society will treat you as though you were wearing a white hood and burning crosses in people's backyards. Who wants to be called that? None of us wants to be called that. There is a visceral fear of being labeled in that horrible way. And the enemy will use that. You know, if you don't want, if you don't want people to call you names, maybe you, just, maybe you just need to either change your views or just don't talk about them. Keep them quiet. So there are all these lines of, of temptation. How then do we put on the armor of God here? How do we particularly put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times? What do you think? How do we put on the helmet of salvation? Why do you think Paul calls it a helmet? Todd, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And first, I mean, exactly. What, what is it? So for those listening, um, Todd said, thinks about, our, you know, the helmet surrounds our minds, right? Our brains. We're to be renewing our minds through the Word of God. What is the function of a helmet as a piece of armor or uh, in sports, even? If you're, maybe that's a more familiar image than military imagery. Why do, why do football players wear helmets, Anna? To protect their heads and ostensibly to protect what's in there, right? Um, right, and so this goes back to what, what Todd was saying, that, we, that the helmet of salvation, salvation is to protect our head, to protect our minds. And, and how do we do that? Todd, repeat what you were saying. What's the passage in mind? Right. Right. Yes, yes, so, and all of those can kind of spring out of Romans 12. So Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, um, appeal to you by the mercies of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word conform means to be, to be, to be moved into the shape of, right? Do not, be, do not be poured into the shape of this world, but to be con- transformed, and the, and the Greek word there is metamorpheo, right? like to be like a butterfly, a metamorphosis, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that renewal comes, as Todd was saying, through filling our minds, filling our thoughts, shaping and forming our hearts, minds, and imaginations by the Word of God. You realize that we are, we are word-shaped beings. It was, the, it, were, it was words that created the universe. It is the stories you tell, the things you believe about yourself, the inputs you receive that form, in so many ways, your identity, who you believe yourself to be, what you desire. And so, all the time, you are, you are selecting and you are being bombarded by different narratives, different stories about what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is you, what people are. And so, if you are going to resist being conformed, poured into the shape of the world, you need to be transformed by making sure that you are consciously feeding your mind with the Word of God, or, as Paul talks about here, the sword of the Spirit. 
because the, 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 the story world, the, so, what some scholars call the social imaginary, what society believes is such a dark cloud of confusion and, and outright lies. What will enable you to stand against that? You need something that will cut through. You need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so pouring that in forms that and helps reinforce that helmet of salvation. It enables you, as uh, John Stott says here, he said, it enables us to, actually he's quoting Charles Hodge. So I'm quoting John Stott, quoting Charles Hodge. And who knows, maybe Hodge was quoting somebody else and didn't put a footnote in. But it is that salvation that adorns and protects us, which enables us to hold up our head with confidence and joy. Right? In, in a battle or in a football game, if you were the only guy on the field without a helmet, are you going to be holding your head up with confidence and joy to enter into the fray? Not unless you're an idiot. Right? But if you are wearing a good helmet, you're in the fight. You're in the game. The same is true here. The salvation that God has promised us, past, present, future, enables us to, to hold our heads up with confidence and joy. Taking up the sword of the Spirit... What does that look like in terms of spiritual warfare? Taking up God's word. Doug. Okay, right. First and foremost, you have to know it to use it, right? And, okay, let's see, let's tease this out just a little bit. Can the word of God be misused? Yeah, to tempt us. Did we ever see that in the life of Jesus? Right, the, 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 one of the temptations, whether it's the second or third depends on which gospel you're reading. But how did Satan try to misuse Scripture to tempt Jesus? Who knows? Who remembers? And why? Why? But what does he quote? He quotes, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up lest you dash your feet against a stone. So the first time he had tempted, Jesus replied with Scripture. Satan said, I got some Scripture for you. And he pulls it out of context and says, see, you can do anything. You can jump off, you can jump off the pinnacle of the temple. So we have to know God's Word, and we have to know it in context, lest it be misused to, to lead us astray. I mean, think about even how this is going on today. And some of these... Um, points of the spear socially and, and culturally that we're experiencing, people say, well, don't you believe in a God of love? And if you believe in a God of love, shouldn't you affirm X, Y, Z, and so on? Well, are they quoting Scripture when they say we have a God of love? Yes. Are they misquoting Scripture in how they're applying it? Also, yes. So we have to understand um, Scripture in its context. So we need to know the Word of God if you can't find your sword, you won't be able to pick it up when you're attacked, right? Okay. All right. Any other thoughts on that? How we take up the sword of the Spirit? What, is a, what, are, what are some great ways to learn uh, Scripture? Memorization, right? Yeah. Chewing on it, right? Pastor Patton and I were talking this week, and he was sharing with me a method that that I think is really valuable. Um, we don't have a name for it, so I said we could call it the patent method, and he said, no, no, don't call it that. So don't call it the patent method. Um, but the non-patent method, <laughs> I really want to give you credit, brother, because I thought it was so helpful. 
He says, take a verse or a promise of Scripture and read it over and over again, but each time slightly emphasizing the next word. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. 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 Right? That's, that's soaking ourselves in the Word of God, memorizing it. Uh, other ways? Music, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. So when our kids were young, we discovered this Canadian artist who was setting a lot of, uh, even a lot of the psalms to music. And, and, and they weren't really paraphrases. He was almost using the ESV verbatim. And so we'd play these songs in the car, and it was, they're very, you know, poppy, kid-friendly. But to this day, I kid you not, when I'm reading some of those psalms, like, I'm hearing this song in my head. That's how I, when I was studying for licensure and ordination, it's how I, how I made sure I had nailed down the books of the Bible in the right order, you know, just having those lists memorized, and the list of the kings. Rehoboam and Abijah, Asa and Jehosha. Yeah, it works. Um, so music is a great way. Anna, what else? Oh. Okay, so for those of you who feel comfortable marking in your Bibles, yes, you can, you can underline, you can highlight, you can doodle. Um, respectfully, because it is God's word, and with very straight lines, because why would you write a squiggly line under a Bible verse, Anna? Um, <laughs> but yes, yes, it's true. You can mark in your Bibles. I can't, but you can. Uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, and just praying. All, like, all of this is important, but if we are not people of prayer, it will all fall apart. Prayer is like those, those leather straps underneath the armor that holds it all together. Without prayer, I mean, notice how four times in verses 18 through 20, Paul talks about prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, just the importance of a continual life of prayer. Um, scripture and prayer belong together. Jesus said, watch and pray. All right, we're, we're essentially at the hour. Any final thoughts on this material? Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great question. So it... In fact, the, the, the one quote here from Stott says that we tend to think of the sword as an offensive weapon, but in the context here, Paul is talking about standing against the schemes of the devil. So it's, uh, in his sense, it's largely defending against the attack of the enemy. However, Hebrews 2 talks about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword. And so there is a sense in which, you know, again, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they, they tempt us. There is still remaining sin in us. And so in that sense, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that the sword of the Spirit could also be like a surgeon's lance that we have to use to cut 
sin out of our own lives. And when, when our own flesh and our own, you know, the, the sinful part of our own hearts is still saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, but I really want, but I really want. You know, when the enemy's got a voice or an echo chamber in our own hearts, then we need to apply the word and fight there as well. Mike, go ahead. That's true. Yeah. All right. It's a good question, Jeremy. Thank you. Go ahead, Dominic. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I, I, I don't know. I would want to think about that a little bit more. I hear what you're saying. It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound off the reservation, but I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to comment sort of officially on that until I'd had a chance to think about it more. But you're right, the church is the bride of Christ, and there is that sense of him covering us and that, that practice of a head covering. So yeah, I'd, I'd want to think about that a little bit more. Thank you, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Any final thoughts before we pray? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these weeks that we have had, these, these six weeks here through the early spring to to think through um, what it means to take up the armor of God, the reality of spiritual warfare, the need to be aware of the enemy's tactics, and yet the confidence that we have in Jesus so that we need not be terrified, that you have given us in Christ and in the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary tools of the Christian life, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, prayer and access to you, and your promises and the, and the truth of the gospel, that we have what we need to stand. But our God, we cannot stand on our own strength. Let us never believe that lie. We cannot, we cannot stand in isolation. Let us not be separate from the body. But we pray that we would be being strengthened in the Lord, individually and as a family in the church. We pray this going forward. Help us to remember what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen.